Right. We are in Isaiah chapter 14. God is good. Let us never forget that. Let's open with a word of prayer. Almighty Lord, our God and Savior, how awesome you are, Heavenly Father. When I look to the sky and I see but our tiny corner in the universe, I am overcome. I think of how great you must be, how great must be the one who created all of this. Your greatness and your beauty are so immense, and I am overwhelmed. And I know that even the greatest things I can imagine about you fall so far short of who you truly are. Lord, we are so lost. The world drags us back, and we continue to look over our shoulder. We are distracted by our sin and our failure to look to you. Heavenly Father, come down this morning so that we do not fall short. Let us not follow after our hearts, our desires, or our thoughts, but to seek you out so that we only hear you, we only see you. God, give us wisdom to hear the words of your prophet Isaiah this morning and to heed them. Give us discernment, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. This passage that we're going to go through today speaks mostly about Babylon. And we hear that name fairly often. I actually had to do some digging about Babylon. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. There's some fascinating things about Babylon that I did not realize um, before I started digging through this passage this week. And I did something unusual this week. I actually got out ahead of the passage, unlike the last time. Quite literally, it was the evening before I came up here to talk to you guys that I finished the piece. This one was done over a day ago, so I actually have some time to think about it. So we'll see how this goes. All right. Um, we're going through Isaiah 14 up to verse 22. It turns out chapter 14 is long and chapter 15 is short. So I broke it off just a little bit in the, the tail end of, of uh, 14 we'll do next week, along with 15. So we're doing 14, 1 through 22. So, verse 1. Oh, let me stop. Um, this passage... Uh, tells how the Lord shall have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel. Now, Jacob and Israel are both literal, the literal salvation of the nation of Israel when a remnant returns from Babylon to Judah. But it's also metaphorical of God's people returning to God with the coming of Jesus. So if you look at it that way, you suddenly realize that this applies directly to us and where we're at. Okay. And Isaiah also tells us of how Babylon is fallen and cut down low to the ground. And you'll see that in the, the larger piece that we're going to go through. Enough background. Let's, let's go ahead and start. So verse 1, the restoration of, of Jacob. So Isaiah 14, verse 1. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land 
And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. So you've heard the opening to this many, many times before. Isaiah repeats it over and over again. Um, And what happens here is there's a piece that gets added just a a little bit, but you've heard this before also. And here it's referred to as sojourners, outsiders, travelers, people who are just visiting normally. But all of a sudden, these people will become attached to the house of Jacob. And they get saved because they're God's people also. And that's us. That's who we are. Isaiah is literally talking about us here. So, Isaiah gives us that refrain, and he will care for his people, all of his people, and will remain faithful to his followers. And that others who are not in the line of Abraham will also come. You'll notice here that it says, God will care for his people and will remain faithful to his followers. All right? God will choose Israel. God chooses. This is one of those verses where when we talk about election, that God chooses us, this, this is one of those verses that pops up because it, when you look at it this way, all of a sudden it's talking about us being chosen by God. Not we chose God, God chooses us. And it points to this idea of election. Um, Romans 9, 6 through 8. Romans 9, 6 through 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so Paul here, we think it's Paul in Romans, is talking about this idea of God choosing us. Let's go on. Verse 2. Now, verse 2 starts up something different, slightly different here. Um, And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. And they will take captive those who were their captors, and rule over those who oppress them. The peoples referred to here are instruments of God's plan, and we shall all be as slaves to God. The prophet Ezra wrote of this many years later. So Ezra 1, 1 through 8. Ezra 1, 1 through 8. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, The Lord stood up in the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people May his God be with him, 
and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with the vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mildredath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shabazar, the prince of Judah. Now get this, right? Look at this. Think about this. Cyrus, who is the king of Babylon, suddenly has this change of heart. And he tells the Israelites who are in his kingdom to return to their own land and rebuild their city and rebuild the temple to the Lord. When I read these things, it's like, what on earth possessed this guy to do this? Well, the only thing that can change someone's heart like that is God. And clearly, this is one of those cases. And Ezra is writing about Cyrus, king of Persia, that allows this to happen. Let's continue on. Back in Isaiah 14, verses 3 and 4. Isaiah 14, 3 and 4. And here we start something new. Israel's remnant taunts Babylon. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. Here Isaiah moves into a short intro to his song or his poem. This is a song against Babylon. God is pronouncing judgment against Babylon. The pain, the suffering, the hard labor will cease, just as it was in the Exodus from Egypt. If you go to Exodus 15.1, Exodus 15.1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. In this case, in Babylon, again, God's people, the remnant, are to take up song and sing. And this song stretches from the middle of verse 4 all the way to verse 21. So we're going to do this whole song this morning. Verse 5. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers. How this is so much like the bondage of Egypt. In the Exodus, 
chapter 1, 8 through 11 and 13 through 14. 8 through 11 and 13 through 14. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Moving down to verse 13 in Exodus 1. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Babylon is much the same in treating the way, treating the Israelites very badly. This is not some vacation. And We're going to talk a little bit more about Egypt and Babylon in particular and why these two are so significant to the development of, of the story here for Judah. Verse 6. That struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. So. This song is in response to the ruthless way Israel has been treated. But you notice that it's not just about Israel. It's all other, the other nations in that area. And here in verse 6, it's this response. If you flip over to Isaiah 25.5, Isaiah 25.5, it says, Like heat in a dry place, you subdue the noise of the foreigners, as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. There's a recurring theme in Isaiah about the way the people of Israel are treated by Babylon. Chapter 14, verses 7 and 8. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing, the cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. This song is heard in response to God's salvation and restitution. The natural beauty of God's creation consoles the people of God. Later on in Isaiah, Isaiah 60, verse 13, Isaiah 60, verse 13, it says, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. And here there's a reference that the woodcutter does not come up against them. When Babylon would conquer another nation, they would literally raise the forests to the ground and drag off all the lumber to build new palaces in Babylon. This was one of the ways that they would oppress the people. They would literally make the land uninhabitable for the people. And so they would completely deforest the land. And this was the way Babylon 
It's almost like they would salt the earth, right? You have this image of that. And it is in, like that in a way. The woodcutter, he is without work. The ancient Assyrians and the Babylonians would boast of the forests of conquered peoples that would be stripped bare to make their grand palaces. Here in verse 9, Isaiah's song shifts slightly. Verse 9, Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who are leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. Here in verse 9, Isaiah uses the popular image of the day of the underworld, of armies of the dead and the tormented souls rising up to carry Babylon off. And it continues on in verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11. All of them will answer and say to you, You too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. The kings in the ancient world had these incredibly amazing and ornate burial processions. The ceremonies were just huge. Gold, silver, thrones. But for the king of Babylon here, he will have a bed of maggots and worms. The contrast is meant to shock us as the readers and to strike fear into the enemies of God's people. Isaiah starts using some heavenly images now. Verses 12 to 14. Verses 12 to 14. Still talking about Babylon. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the height of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. The king of Babylon thinks very highly of himself here, right? You can see that. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. Can you imagine anyone who would say that? I will make myself like the most high. Proverbs 16, 18 and 19. Proverbs 16. 18 and 19. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. There's also a reference here to a Can Canaanite creation myth that the king of the gods was called El and that he presided over the assembly of the gods his throne room was on a mountaintop in Syria, in the north. Babylon wished to not only possess this mountain, but to claim the throne of El for the king of Babylon. People claim great authority, and they forget that it all belongs to God. 
it all belongs to the God of the universe. God is the one who remains sovereign. Psalm 48, 1 and 2. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. There's also a short passage in Genesis, Genesis 14, 18 to 20. Genesis 14, 18 to 20. You know this one. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. We have this short little snippet of Melchizedek here in Genesis. And there's no mention of how Melchizedek comes to know God Most High. And we don't know what happens to Melchizedek afterwards. But we know that Melchizedek knew who God was, as did Abram. And so the two of them are automatically friends simply because of this one fact even though they did not know each other before this. Isaiah 14, verse 15. Isaiah 14, 15. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Instead of sitting on his throne, the king of Babylon is brought to the bottomless pit. Verse 16. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? How great is the amazing king of Babylon? I have often wondered how those people must have thought of themselves, how they must have felt. Did they really believe their own words? Did they really believe that they were God? Could they convince themselves of that? In any way did they think that they were God? Did they fear pain? Did they fear death? How can you be God and then fear death? Does that make any sense? I wonder about the king of Babylon here. I wonder about the pharaohs and what they must have thought. And when there were uprisings, were they afraid? They must have been. Verses 17 and 18, talking again about Babylon and what Babylon does. Who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities and who did not let his prisoners go home? Again, talking about reducing all the forests to rubble. To make the earth a desert and to not let prisoners go home. Babylon, like many other human institutions, wielded the power which they were so proud to spread destruction and cruelty. This is what Babylon did 
to the people of God. Verses 18 and 19. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out, away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. This piece is meant to be a rhetorical contrast of the greatness of Babylon and its final state. Thrown out like so much trash or refuge, or even sewage, left to decay and rot in the sun, while wild animals roam freely through its fallen buildings and palaces. Think for a moment of all the great and honored kings who are given burials of state, the honors bestowed on them as they are laid to rest amid great pomp and circumstance. The king of Babylon here is given no such honor. It is regarded as the highest of catastrophes not to have a proper burial with honor. And that is exactly what happens to the king of Babylon. And the poem concludes, You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers nevermore be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons, because the guilt of the fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth, will fill the face of the world with cities. The king will not be joined with the honored kings in burial. This king brought disaster on his own land and his own people. And those of his kingdom who have perpetuated such crimes with the king shall not be named again. And these have even brought evil on their own children. The punishment of the fathers bring pain and suffering and death to their own children. A terrible end to such a civilization. And this is the end of the poem or the song. The passage concludes, verse 22, and Isaiah explains, I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord, and I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. Here in verse 22, Isaiah explains that God has said, the Lord shall rise up against Babylon and cut off their name, their remnant, their descendants, and their posterity. It is all swept away, complete and utter destruction. Verse 22 closes this passage. The oppressor is destroyed utterly and completely, and God assures this. So when I got to this point in the passage, I'm going... Okay, now i got to know more about Babylon, right? And so this leads to about two days of just reading stuff. And it's fascinating what's been going on in, in, in Babylon. And I looked up all this up on the archaeological history of Babylon. 
It's first mentioned in cuneiform tablets that are dated to Sargon the Great, the emperor of the Akkadian Empire in about 2300 BC. Babylon is a small village at that time. Babylon rose to great power in the ancient world between about 2000 and 1600 BC. So for 400 years, Babylon was perhaps the greatest nation on the planet. Followed by a decline and then another rise to power in 800 to 700 BC. And that's this time that, that Isaiah is talking here. And after this time, Babylon was ruled by no less than nine different empires being conquered nine different times. Absolute destruction, nine different times. The last time was by the Roman Empire. The town of Babylon was last occupied in around 900 AD, and it was just a small village at that time, and no one has lived there since. For the last 1,200 years, Babylon has been completely devoid of anyone living there. Even today, the only people that live there are the people who are unearthing the ruins, the archaeologists themselves. The ruins lie about 50 miles south of modern-day Baghdad in Iraq. Babylon was the largest city in the world between 1770 to 1670 BC, and again from 1612 to 320 BC. Babylon is regarded as one of the three great ancient civilizations that first arose, the others being Egypt and China. And significantly, Israel is almost exactly halfway between Egypt and Babylon. I have a young friend at NASA. His name is Paul Yu. He's Korean. And when he revealed to me that he, he, he's Korean, that, that he came from Korea, I had to make a joke. Oh, that's the Far East. That's Poland of the Far East. And he looks at me all puzzled, and I said, okay, you have to imagine Poland, Russia, Germany, Russia, Germany, Russia, Germany over and over to the Polish people. Poland has only existed as a country since World War I. Prior to that, the Polish people did not have a country. They were being overrun continually by either Russia or Germany on each side. And it's the same thing in Korea. Korea is between Japan and China. And so they keep getting overrun, one after the other. Korea as a country has not existed in the world prior to World War II. The Korean people did not have their own country. So it is with Israel being stuck halfway between Egypt and Babylon. Interesting thing about Babylon, on the outskirts of town, outside of the city walls, Saddam Hussein built his summer palace. And he used to go there in the summer to sit and look at the ruins, look out of his palace at the ruins just to the south of where his summer palace was. 
For the last 1,200 years, no one has lived in that ancient city. Isaiah's prophecy. When we look at this passage, Isaiah is giving us that message of hope that God's people will come back. And we know that God promises to save his people. Redemption comes at a great price. And it's bought and paid for. And you can see how this lesson applies directly to us, even today. We are the ones who are unworthy of God, and yet God has done all of this for us. We can follow along with Isaiah to be the remnant, to heed the words of God, carrying the words of God in our hearts, to be the remnant to come back. This is why Jesus is there calling us. Jesus had to pay for our rebellion against God so that we could be a part of this remnant. It was our sin and our unfaithfulness that causes Jesus to be led away and nailed to that cross. Jesus takes our guilt away. Our sin is atoned for by Jesus' death on the cross. Over and over when Isaiah talks about these things, this is what's going through my head. I read this, and I understand what's going on, and I know what it means to me personally. Isaiah is pointing us back to God. Isaiah keeps telling us, don't look at the Assyrian army, look at Jesus. Don't look at Babylon, look at Jesus. This is the message of hope from God. Isaiah is telling us to change the way we live in the world. Isaiah wants us to be more like Christ. We become more Christ-like by looking to God. And the more we look to Jesus, the more we become like him. God loves us in ways that we cannot even imagine. I look at the chaos in the world today and how this message sounds so much like the world we live in now. I think of how I fail at this. I have to admit, earlier this week, I was, I was feeling a little down about this whole COVID thing. I mean, Leanne and I literally have not gone anywhere or done anything in for 11 months now. We've gone to visit our oldest son a couple of times. But that's been it. God knows I'm not where I need to be yet. And again and again, I'm on my knees before God, asking for forgiveness. I don't rely on God the way I should. And I need to look to God for mercy and love. And I need that love that is beyond all comprehension or understanding. I need God's power of forgiveness. And despite all this, God still chooses us. God, our Abba Father. God's greatness will be there for all to see on the day of the Lord. And we will all be witness to his greatness and his splendor on that day. the new Jerusalem, with no need of a temple, because God dwells there. Indeed, we wait for Jesus to come. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you are so great, and we are so insignificant. Lord, you have kept these words spoken to all of us through all these years by Isaiah. You've sheltered them down all these years just for us to have your words today down through the ages to give to us. Heavenly Father, we have not been faithful. And yet you continue to hold us in the palm of your hand. And you lovingly guide us with your words. Heavenly Father, hide your words in our hearts. Carve the words of your prophet Isaiah deep down inside of us. Give us the lessons we must learn from you, only from you. Guide us in the ways of your will. Lord, we are so unfaithful, and you are so true. Your plan of redemption is so perfect. Lord Jesus, you died in our place to redeem all of us, to save us, to bring us to your Father. Lord, you are so amazing, and we love you, Jesus. We bless you. We hold you up. We honor you, and we praise your name, the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen.